Hey everyone, we just launched a new show called Request for Startups. In the first season, we've got a rotating lineup of tech founders and investors joining me to share their requests for startups they want to exist in the world, and also share their stories of navigating the idea maze in different sectors so founders don't have to reinvent the wheel anymore. The first episode is out now. We cover better dating apps, references as a service, and we work for productivity. Listen first, then build. Video episodes of the show are on our Substack. You'll find a link in the description. Over the entirety of the business, I've constantly thought about like if you're down on Wall Street and you ask 10 people what is Morning Brew, I'd say in 2015, 10 out of 10 would say I've never heard of the thing. Then I would say, you know, 2017, it was maybe three out of 10 new. And two of those three were like, oh yeah, it's like the skim for business or the skim for guys. And and little by little, the number gets higher. But my goal is five years from now, you ask those 10 people on Wall Street what Morning Brew is, eight out of 10 people say what they know what Morning Brew is, but only three of them are, oh, I read your daily newsletter. And then one person is, oh yeah, Money with Katie, that person who's taught me everything I need to know about personal finance. Like she's part of like the Brew family, right? And like that guy, Dan Toomey, who does the funniest work humor YouTube videos, he's part of the Brew also. Like that's what it starts feeling like is like we're the octopus and all the tentacles are our creators. Welcome to Media Empires, where we sit down with the most influential media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires. Our aim is to extract the secrets of top tier podcasters, newsletter authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empire or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode. Grab your headphones, let's dive in. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short form clips directly from Riverside, because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code Media Empires to get a 20% discount. Alex Lieberman is the co-founder of Morning Brew, a business he started while helping his college classmates prepare for interviews and noticing they failed to connect with traditional business news. With his co-founder, Austin Reef, their daily newsletter became a fully-fledged multimedia company, reaching over 4 million subscribers, which they sold when Alex was 28 for $75 million. In this episode, we discuss how Alex thinks about Morning Brew's business strategy five years from now why you got in touch with Machine Gun Kelly, and how to build an enduring media business. Alex, welcome to, to Media Empires. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Pumped to do this. So Alex, we, we've had Austin, from, from uh, your partner from Morning Brew already. So we've, we've gone a little bit deep into the, into the business. So we'll spend some time there, and then we'll spend some time on, on incubation and just more broadly, like what are opportunities in, uh, in media and, and some of the entrepreneurship media uh, you, you've been doing as well. But I, I want to start with the, the Morning Brew question, which is, when you think of Morning Brew, how do you, in, in context of like work week or industry dive, how do you situate th this world and what are the different approaches and where you guys have chosen to, to play within that kind of opportunity set? Yeah. I mean, the way that I would describe it is, and this is going to be, I would say rather generalized, but on one side you have traditional media, which has largely been called brand first. Um, and th that isn't entirely true. I think there are there are old school brands, media brands that have done actually a great job of not being brand first and being personality first. You know, I'll use the example of like SNL, 
Like I, I think SNL is like the OG example of doing an amazing job at um, finding great talent, nurturing that talent and using it as a launch pad where like, you know, I'd say SNL's best like thing is their alumni base are the people they can point to that were kind of pumped through the machine, but it didn't stop with them. And then on the other side, I would say, you know, you see a lot of people talking about how personality driven media is everything today. And I feel like just in general, in society with businesses, we always, the pendulum always swings too far because we as human are emotional beings and we get excited about things and then they swing back. So I also think some of the sentiment about being personality driven sometimes actually gets either overblown or doesn't fully respect some of the trade-offs or downsides that come along with it. And so, yeah, uh, you know, personality driven media, what I think about today is things like barstool, things like overtime, things like uh, work week, morning brew, what we're trying to do, especially on the multimedia side. And so I would say morning brew sits somewhere in the middle where the way that we think about it is we live in an age where there's going to continue to be a supply of creators coming to the world. I think part of that is driven by just like younger generations desire and sentiment to be like their heroes and heroes today are Mr. Beast of the world uh, and not astronauts, unfortunately, slash fortunately, I don't know how to feel about that. Um, so I think that's part of the tailwind. The other tailwind is the internet and all the tools that it gives us to access audience and to monetize that audience and all those things. But there's also a lot of limitations and like hardship that you have to go through as a creator, right? Like Beast has been creating videos for 13 years. It's like um, so many of these people are, you know, we talk about like for Morning Brew, we are an eight-year overnight success. It's the same exact thing for these individuals. And so the question becomes, how can media companies support creators? And our view at The Brew was always like, well, what are the things that make us different from other brands. And it was always distribution, giving access to distribution. Uh, so that was, I would say it's something that buys creators time because they could probably get to that size of audience, but it would take them three or four years longer. Uh, access to our sales org, right? Because you know we have a 70 person revenue org. Whereas if you're a creator, as you start building audience, you realize shit, like I've loved creating content. Now I have to do all these other back office things. And you have to make the really hard decision of like, am I going to take all of my cash flow that I'm just starting to make to hire a person to do those things? And then the third is like logistics. So say you're a podcaster, you want to start getting into YouTube. Uh, this was something that I definitely became more aware of as Morning Brew got into multimedia, but like the economics of multimedia and YouTube, uh, especially if you want something that has pretty solid production value is like really freaking expensive. Whereas like we were used to in the world of newsletters, like $199 a month got us everything we needed to get in front of an email audience. So that's how we thought about the brew is like for the, for the entirety of our time as a business, when we thought of ourselves as a newsletter company, we had two customers, we had our readers and we had our advertisers. And we started thinking about things as, well, what if we have a third customer and the third customer is creators and, and, our service, our platform is basically an operating system with different competencies that make it worth their while to share in the upside with us. Fascinating. So, so in say three years from now or five years from now, if you had to guess, where is the um, majority of business going to come from, from Morning Brew? Yeah. So I would say 
there's still a very high likelihood that the the majority of business is coming from advertising, but I would say it's more of where is people's experience with morning brew coming from, right? So uh, the the analogy I always use is like over the entirety of the business, I've constantly thought about like if you're down on Wall Street and you ask 10 people what is morning brew, I'd say in 2015, 10 out of 10 would say I've never heard of the thing. Then I would say, you know, 2017, it was maybe three out of 10 new. And two of those three were like, oh yeah, it's like the skim for business or the skim for guys. And and little by little, the number gets higher. But my goal is five years from now, you ask those 10 people on Wall Street what Morning Brew is, eight out of 10 people say what they know what Morning Brew is, but only three of them are, oh, I read your daily newsletter. And then one person is, Oh yeah, money with Katie, that person who's taught me everything I need to know about personal finance. Like she's part of like the brew family, right? And like that guy Dan Toomey, who does the funniest work humor YouTube videos, he's part of the brew also. Like that's what it starts feeling like is like we're the octopus and all the tentacles are our creators. Is Barstool for Business a good analog? Like will you have like a hundred podcasts or like is that is that the right kind of business analog to think about? I think that it is a directionally right analog, but where I would add nuance is I don't think it's a hundred for us. I think it's something like between 15 and 25. And the reason I say that is like, we we're not in the quantity business and, and I don't say quantity as a knock, like their audience is a more general audience. Like the way we think about content is there's three levels of content. Level one is let's call it like general topics that have a huge addressable market. Business, politics, pop culture. Um, I actually think investing is up there, which makes it super attractive. Uh, level two is industry or job function specific or more niche like that. So retail, marketing, et cetera. And level three is like the niches of the niches. Like I would say this podcast we're doing right now, like things around the creator economy, that's still a level three. Barstool has always played in level one. And they think when you play in level one uh, and you have a level one audience, you best monetize yourself through lower CPM advertising and lifestyle products if you build a true brand. If you do most of your stuff in level two, I'd say you're best monetized through high CPM, smaller market, or premium products. And level three is generally the, the same thing. And so what I mean by that is for us aggregating quantity of audience shouldn't be the game. It should be aggregating the depth of a quality audience that we can then charge higher CPMs for, come out with paid products for, et cetera. And so like, it's almost the same mentality of what we did with Morning Brew's B2B business, where we have retail brew, we have marketing brew, CFO brew, uh, healthcare brew, et cetera. We think about it the same exact way for multimedia. I would just say, say on the B2C side, where we ask ourselves, what are the deep passion areas within business that we can exploit because the audience is really going to give a shit around that content. So it's personal finance, investing, career, real estate, entrepreneurship, venture capital, et cetera. So that's one big difference. I'd say the other big difference is because we are more of a, let's call it professional or prosumer brand than like Barstool. Whereas I would say Barstool has done a great job of like their commerce business is a third of their revenue. Or like when they came out with Pink Whitney, like their vodka, that was the number one selling vodka in the country for a period of time. 
I think we would net it would never make sense or it doesn't work for us to make to create very meaningful businesses from lifestyle based products where I think we can create very meaningful businesses is from like utility based products. So said differently, you go to Katie for personal finance information. What is something that is going to level up you being smart with your money, whether it is a paid Excel sheet or whether it's a personal finance mastermind for a weekend with Katie in the Caribbean? That's really helpful context. So is the idea that you'll get like a, a Lenny Richitsky, what he does for product management for, for for kind of like every position. Exactly. And like what Packy does for technology and startups, maybe for like uh, real estate or, or every kind of broader sector, you know, the, the, the five or six topics that you mentioned. Exactly right. Yeah. It, it's basically what does it look like to aggregate uh, those people you just mentioned or like said differently, like we've seen a lot of success with Money with Katie and we know that the business around Katie can be uh, an eight figure business. How do we aggregate? 12 more of those. And by the way, the way we aggregate 12 more of those is actually aggregating 25 more of those because we're not going to bat a thousand. And the other thing I'll say is like, I think one, one of my biggest, uh, I don't want to say regrets, but I, I wish we had had this creator business earlier because like the first time I talked to Packy was when he was still figuring out not boring. He was still thinking about doing like events. He hadn't even started a newsletter yet. And I was like, let's figure out a way to like, acquire you, aqua hire you. And it was just like, we didn't have the infrastructure yet. And it would have been obviously like a massive home run, but I'm so happy for him because it's incredible. What he's built was so in such a resource light way. But what I'd say is like, it wouldn't make sense to work with packing now. Um, or if it did, it wouldn't necessarily be for the financial upside. It would be for other purposes, like working with him, because he gives us access to earlier stage creators who now think of Morning Brew when they think of a place to work with a brand. I would say the the ideal creator we work with is like uh, an inning two creator, someone who has proven content market fit. So you don't have to worry about that being proven. In a perfect world, they've already monetized their audience. So you know their audience gives a shit enough to pull out their wallet, but they don't, they haven't yet cracked the nut as it relates to accelerating distribution maximizing their monetization or going into other form factors of content other than just like one thing. And Katie was like in that perfect stage. And that those are the type of people we look for. Fascinating. I'm curious how these deals are going to look like over time when there's a lot, a lot of players and kind of market clearing price. When, when you find someone like a Packy, let's say he's still at breather or he's just starting, you know, just start leaving, just starting out. Do you, do you, you probably try to hire them initially if you can't hire them, maybe you do a joint venture with, with them. And then at some point, you know, they translate from the content to the businesses on top of the content. And so with Packy, presumably uh, you would have uh, owned some percentage of his management company for the fund or, or how do you kind of see these deals? Like if you had found Lenny when he was at Airbnb or something, like how did these, these deals end up looking, you think? Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. And I would say it's like, Everyone is still trying to figure out the best way to do this. You know, what I can speak to is how we do it at the brew, which is so far, all of our creators have been like salaried employees who then we own their IP, uh, not like their personal IP, like as in like we own like their branded IP, like the the money with Katie email list. But if Katie started her own personal newsletter, we wouldn't own that. And then uh, each creator gets a percentage 
of all net revenue of every business that is monetized around them. So whether it's advertising, whether it's educational courses, whether it's events, they participate in the upside of all of those things. If there was something that they wanted to do outside of Morning Brew, like write a book or like things like that, we don't, we don't, we're not taking everything. We're just taking basically the things that are squarely within what Morning Brew is, I, I guess, like what our brand represents. Um, so that that's how I think about it. And I think the hard part about this, right, is, you know, some people will say, well, like, why are you taking their, their IP from them? Like what, and I think while the sentiment I understand at the end of the day, if you're a media company, you're in the IP business. And also you're also, if you're getting someone very early in their journey, you're doing, you're increasing the probability of that IP actually having eyeballs and having value, like embedded value where I think, I think it does make sense to have participation. Now, I think what becomes interesting is what the structure looks like in the future, such that there's maybe more creative ways for the percentage of IP ownership to change over time. Or like, even like, just to talk about an example with, um, I'm just going to use someone who's big right now, like Ryan Serhant, Ryan Serhant, big real estate broker has built an amazing media brand. Like it, it probably wouldn't make sense for him to work with us right now because he already has distribution. Uh, you know, he, he already knows how to monetize himself. He probably doesn't care that much about the advertising because he monetizes himself through his brokerage and through his courses to teach people how to be real estate brokers. But maybe there's something to be done where we launch a podcast together, together if he hasn't done that before. And we run the production and ops of that whole thing and we plug it to Morning Brew's whole audience. What that does is that brings net audience, new audience to him that he hasn't had before. He doesn't have to deal with the headache of setting up all the logistics around production of a podcast and say, we front the cost of it. Now, it's going to make sense for him to own some portion of the IP, but not all of it. Where things, and this is a roundabout way of saying to your, to, to answer your question around like, how do the how do you set up these agreements? If I've learned one thing from talking to all these creators is like it is not going to be cookie cutter at all. They are going to be very bespoke transactions. So even something like what does even what does it even mean? Say we launch a podcast and it's on YouTube. Uh, also, what does fifty percent ownership of that mean? Like there's a podcast feed, there's social handles, there's a YouTube. Does that mean like 50% of advertising dollars are, are split? But like also what happens, like likely these assets aren't going to necessarily be sold as like individual items. So it just like, it gets like very complex very quickly because I think at the end of the day, you're not talking about businesses, you're talking about people. Yeah. yeah. So you guys are doing is kind of like early stage, you know, creator investing, you know, in, in our uh, creator group chat, we have our friend Megan uh, at Slow who's doing kind of later stage creator investing on, on the YouTube side where they are uh, giving you know something like a million dollars or $2 million for something like 5% of, of uh, YouTubers earnings over the next 30 years. Um, and so I'm curious, just like if there's going to be some equivalent of like a YC safe or some just like standardized terms so that these things don't have to be so, so bespoke. 
to be honest with you, I haven't thought a ton about it, but the way that I would try to think about it is say, okay, with the YC safe, what is the true value that is being added to these entrepreneurs at that stage in the building of their businesses? And is kind of what's being asked for by YC as in like equity in the business, um, the ability to have add-on investments in the future, like is that justified for what value is needed from an entrepreneur? Now, take that over to creators asking the same question. That's why like sometimes I like reasoning by analogy, but other times there's part of me that's like, okay, let's just start at like the fundamental of um, if I'm a creator who my goal is to be a full-time creator, I'm let, I'm just using a random example. Like let's just say I'm working in finance right now and being a creator is my my outlet on the side and I'm writing a newsletter about like doing equity research. Um, if I was to ask myself, and my goal is to ultimately do that full-time, what are the things that would allow me to either increase the probability of full-time writing like my newsletter that's equity research or uh, allow me to accelerate getting to that point? I think the big answer is access to audience for sure. But the question becomes also like if there's a YC for creators, how do you exactly do that? Like for Morning Brew, right? Like again, we're talking about 15 to 25 creators all within business. What does it look like for like a YC of sorts to give access to distribution unless you own a platform? Uh, okay. So that's the first. The second is monetization. Like that would be super helpful. But like there are also, there are agencies out there when you get your audience to a certain size that could just basically sell my ads and they keep 25% of it. So then it's like, if that, if that exists in the marketplace, that means as like a YC and like this standardized agreement, you need to add something beyond that or else you would just be competing with every agency. And then the rest is logistics, which is like the cost of doing the thing. I think part of it is like we live in a world where actually creating great media is not nearly as expensive as like putting out a great software product. So I'm still trying to rack my brain on like, what is the, what is the kind of in dollars, the value that can be added such that it justifies being able to get X percentage that early. I wonder if it, one thing just to add to the potential list of services it, is helping them find kind of COOs or, yep. uh, you know, lead operators that could not just help run the business that they currently run, but additional business, uh, items. I think that is like a huge value add. The majority of creators I talk to, what happens is they get to a certain point, right? They realize there's a ton of backend work um, that they likely don't want to do, or they don't know how to do it. And that's just related to like their core business. That's even just like, you're a YouTuber who's gotten to a size of audience where you're monetizing through AdSense. You could do direct brand deals, but that means you have to do the logistics of that. Now um, you have to go out, hunt those brand deals. You have to do the operations around it say you end up wanting to launch like some new content that's like there's so much work that goes into it that's all before you even think to yourself oh wow what if i want to monetize my audience not via advertising like i want to launch like a paid community or a course or you know i'm a, a car youtuber who launches cars and bids or like then it becomes exponentially uh harder and so i think the idea of pairing coos with creators make so much sense. And it's honestly, it's been done for so long, right? So then the question in my head becomes like, what is the real problem that exists there? Like what, what are creators missing in this process? And maybe one of the answers is 
they don't know where to find COOs. Either like COOs have to find them or like through some relationship, they have to get connected. And then the question is like, is that actually the best person? So like there is an interesting thing of like, I don't know, does it look a little bit like a headhunting agency yeah. for COOs of creator-based businesses? I, you know, I always think back to, and I think about this all the time because as I think about in my future, like incubating other businesses, building a hold co of creator-based businesses is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Like I, I've kind of dreamed of what would it look like to have the Berkshire Hathaway for creators where I help creators incubate their businesses. I help them find COOs. Um, and then, so like I'm in the trenches for let's call it six months to a year, find them a great COO and move on to the next one. Like almost like call it like the, the atomic or the idea lab for creator based businesses. Um, I think where part of the answer lies is like, depending on the creator you work with, you don't need that many at-bats for it to be really meaningful for you as a operating partner such that like, I wonder if the problems are different for different people. And so I just even use the example of Ken Austin. Are you familiar with Ken Austin? No. So Ken Austin, I think of him as like the OG creator operator. And there probably were people before this, but this is the first one I know of where Ken Austin started either NetJets, Marquee Jets, one of the private plane companies. Oh, yeah. Then... I don't know why he got into this business. He got into the uh, tequila business mm -hmm. and he created Tequila Avion. And Tequila Avion obviously blew up because of Entourage. Yep. And what I found out was he knew one of the producers of Entourage. So that thing was scripted into the show. He didn't pay a dollar for it and it blew up the brand. Wow. And so after that, he was like, holy shit. Like I'm this was my aha moment of distribution really matters. And so then he took the competency of alcohol and he took that to creators. So next he went to Conor McGregor and created proper Irish whiskey, which they sold for a quarter of a billion dollars. Then he went to the rock and, uh, they launched Terramana tequila, which, uh, they've sold a piece of it for a lot of money. And so then I think an argument becomes like, you know, where my head starts going is, does that mean in finding operators or being an operator or partnering with creators, you need to have a sp certain specialty? Like you have to be verticalized. You have to be the alcohol person or you have to be the, you know, uh, whoever launched Prime with Logan Paul, like they are verticalized in consumer products also. I think that is definitely an advantage for sure, but I actually don't think it has to exist. Because I think, again, these things are so bespoke and one-off. The first brand, uh, creator brand you launch is the hardest inevitably to get momentum. But after that, there's trust that you can just do this with other creators. So, you know, I'm talking to someone who uh, I think he's actually he either joined or he's about to join like our creator group we're in. He helped build Kanye's brand Yeezy for eight years. Wow. And he's working right now on launching a brand in a totally different space from fashion with a, I would call it a top 0.1% uh, musician. And he was able to get that because of that experience. So that momentum helped him. But at the end of the day, like not to say operators are commoditized, they're not, it's really hard to find them. But my view is like, if you have the right relationship with the right creator, you can find the right operator because it's going to be so attractive for operators to partner up with that creator. Yeah. Do you think that the, let's say the atomic for creators needs to also manage them only because I worry about too many middlemen um, or does it also need to be a management agency or how do you think about that? Yeah. So I've, you know, I feel like that is the format 
you've seen a lot happen already, right? Like Night Media started yeah. with management and now building businesses. And the funny part is, if I had to guess, the businesses are worth well more than the management yeah. company, which is a, gr a great problem to have. Uh, you have like um, a, a few people, I think they're in our creator group chat also, uh, the Hawk brothers who started with management company managing YouTubers in like the gaming and sports space. Now they launched brands with those people. I think it makes it a lot easier, right? Because you have the relationship with the creator. I think the question becomes, if you don't have a management company, it means you don't have a starting relationship with these creators. So then how do you basically bypass that relationship? And to me, it means you have to have some other credibility or win, or you have to be uh, friends with a creator so early in their journey. Kind of like when I think about like LeBron's agent for his whole career, or like these players who their agents are were like their high school best friends. So I think it's possible, but I think it makes it harder because basically it's like you're you're starting without earned credibility. Yeah, totally. Are, are you suggesting that if I was wanted to start this atomic for uh, for creators, you'd recommend that it also have a management arm or partner with a management arm? I mean, if I was saying it to you, I would say you should be able to do it without the management arm yeah. because I think you have enough earned legitimacy within the world of startups. I think if it's someone just starting it as their first business, yes, I would I would recommend start with an agency. Not to, also like I think there's there's a reasonable argument to make that you should start with an agency, which that argument would be you're relatively new, say, to the creator space. It will be a accelerated kind of education on understanding how creators are to work with, how that how they think. And I do think it would be it would end up helping you build better creator businesses because I would say the number one thing in talking to like operators of creator businesses that they find is creators can be difficult and also it's such a levered bet, right? It's such a levered bet on one person. It's like, you really have to not fuck it up, right? And that's why there's a lot of risk to creator businesses. But in talking to some of these people, you know, I would say their number one learning was they got really far down the road of talking to creators. And then they realized one of two things, either one, the creator has an audience, but they don't actually drive sales. Like they can't actually, they don't actually have the, affinity to get people to pull out their wallet for something. And two, and I'd say this is usually the case with more traditional talent, but it, I think it still pertains to YouTubers, is that these people, like, they get excited by launching businesses because their friends launched a business. It's like a flashy object. And by the way, I do think it makes a ton of sense for creators, and I can explain why. But they get excited by the, the idea of it rather than why they want to do it. And so... There are people I've talked to who tried launching businesses with creators, and after a week, the creator wasn't excited about it. I'll use an example. I, um, As I was thinking about this space, I was thinking about different brands launch, and one brand I thought about launching was a, a men's uh, like grooming brand that started with men's nail polish. And the reason was I, I've never worn nail polish before, but I've noticed that like in the last five years, I've seen more and more men wearing nail polish. Yep. And so then I was like, who would be the perfect creator to launch a men's nail polish brand? And in my head, I was like, Machine Gun Kelly. Machine <laughs> Gun Kelly, yeah. like he wears nail polish always. And so I ended up getting in touch with uh, MGK's agent or his manager. And he was like, I love the idea. You're like six months too late. He had launched a, a men's nail polish brand. But when I did more digging into it, it was actually really like, I felt really bad about what they did in the sense that 
Machine Gun Kelly doesn't market it at all. Like he's wearing his own nail polish and it's never getting promoted by him. And it's just like a totally separate brand. And I just can't imagine it's doing that well because they're not drafting off of both the authenticity of the fit between the creator and its product and his distribution. And so I think that's the other thing. It's like creators will lose interest quickly or they'll hop into launching products that aren't, there isn't actually like creator product audience fit. Like it's both either not authentic to their lives or it doesn't make sense for who their audience is. Or especially in the world of like artists, artists will feel like they're selling out if they start promoting their business. Yeah. Fascinating. So let's flesh this out further. Let's say that for the hypothetical thought experiment, us two were creating the atomic for creators. So which businesses would we first look into? Would we be opportunistic in terms of which creators you think it's is a creator first or is it more like sector first? And then within creators, of course, there are YouTubers, there are athletes, there are musicians, there are writer, you know, um, tech creators. There's all different kinds of creators. How would you think about some of these yeah. questions? So I break it down into basically four categories of creator businesses. There are creator originated businesses, meaning a creator has an idea for a business that they believe is authentic to their brand and will resonate with their audience. The second is operator originated, where an operator has an idea for a business, an entrepreneur has an idea for a business, and they're like, I want to latch on a creator to launch it, to have day one distribution. So I'd put like Ken Austin's alcohol brands in that bucket. I would put um, my buddy, Chris Mead, who's in the backyard game space. He just, he just launched Good Sports, which is his new backyard game business. He latched Danny Duncan, who's a massive YouTuber, onto that business, but he always had the Good Sport idea before that. The third is Creator Incubated, where basically you identify a creator who you think is on the upswing and has a super valuable and um, loyal audience. You go to them and pitch them on the value that having a business has, and you basically go through a sprint of coming up with the idea and incubating the business. And then the fourth is what I would call a creator brokered uh, business, which is a business already exists. It's kind of a steady eddy business that has a great product and you bring in a creator to accelerate growth. And so that would be like the aviation gin model, right? Where Ryan Reynolds was brought into an already existing business and it absolutely blew up. So those are the four businesses. I think there's two questions to ask. One is, what do I think has the highest probability of success and which one would I personally be interested in doing most? Because those are different things. I think the one with the highest probability of success is the creator brokered business because you have a business that already has like a loyal audience. Um, there's clear product market fit. So like you're past that point. Um, and you probably could buy this business at a relatively low multiple because it's not growing that fast. Uh, and especially if it's a relatively commoditized product, all that matters as it is, is brand and marketing. And so you're basically, the equity you're giving is the cost of brand and marketing. Um, if I was to say what I'm most interested in, I would say it's operator originated and creator or creator incubated. And I think that just leads into the things I love. Like I love consuming content. I love discovering new talent. Like there's a part of me that really just wants to be like the Simon Cowell of creators, like find people super early, see that they're building a loyal audience and invest in them vis-a-vis -a, -vis a business when they're on the upswing. And then I would say the second one, which is operator originated. Like for me, as, as I've told you, it's like, you know, one of my dreams is just like to build a venture studio where I have many businesses over the me next many years. 
And so I have a, a shit ton of ideas. And I do think it would be really cool to launch some of these ideas with creators. So those are the two things I, I would be most excited about. I do think they are the higher risk options just by way of you're starting earlier in the process. Um, but I also just continue to have this question about when does it truly make sense to make a creator a partner, right? Like there's a spectrum of ways that you could work with a creator. Let's say the most passive being paying a creator for advertisement all the way to creator being your partner, like truly your co-founder. And I'm still trying to triangulate when kind of these different options along the scale make sense because I'll, I'll just give you a real-time example. A business that I'm building on the side for fun right now is a backyard game. So I'm building this backyard game that's an axe-throwing inspired backyard game that you play at home and it's basically you throw plungers at a board. And I thought of the idea for the business because I was watching a Dude Perfect video and their fourth most watched video of all time is Plunger Trick Shots. And I watched it, I was like, wow, one, I didn't realize plungers stick that well to things. And two, they have an axe throwing motion and like axe throwing is going through a moment right now also. So it's a nice temporary tailwind. But as I was building this game and I felt a lot of confidence that like, I think this product is going to speak for itself. I was like, why would I, what, what's my rationale for, let's say, just say hypothetically giving dude perfect 25 to 50% of the business just as a hypothetical, because the, I asked myself like, what's the alternative? The alternative would be going and finding other influencers and then paying them an affiliate fee or, or paying them. And as they drive sales, they can earn equity into the business. So it's, it's less of a levered bet. And so like, that's where I, I kind of get stuck is like, I actually am starting to feel like the vast minority of ideas or creators warrant a true co-founder as a creator. Yeah. The earn equity, like on a results basis is pretty, pretty fascinating as well. Uh, idea. I, I hadn't considered that concept. H how do you think about what types of businesses this would do in terms of like, there's, there's commerce and that tends to be uh, a very popular thing to build on top of creators. You know, Mr. Beast obviously with Beastables, but then there's like Blake Robbins came on and he was like, Mr. Beast should have done a cash app competitor. Uh, you know, like, how do you think about commerce for software you know, marketplaces or other totally? Software? Yeah. So I mean, I would say like the easy stuff or the low hanging fruit is what's been done mostly in the creator space right now. Meaning like it makes sense that Mr. Beast did Feastables. It, may, it makes sense that uh, Logan Paul did Prime. It, it makes sense that, you know, The Rock did Tequila, right? We're talking about commoditized products where it's a category where product market fit already exists. Like you don't have to ask the question, are people going to drink tequila and are they going to drink it over and over or are people going to eat chocolate over and over? And so I think the reason it makes so much sense there is at the end of the day, what a creator gives you is they give you brand, they give you marketing, they give you other things, but those are like the two big things. So you're just wrapping an attractive brand around a commoditized product to me in the same way that like a lot of these fintech businesses are just wrapping a brand around existing rails that banks have, but the benefit you get is you also have the built-in distribution, which is why you're paying up for it. I think, and, I, and I've talked about this with a few people, like I do think there's a really interesting world in which B2B 
has a creator opportunity. Meaning, I'm just going to take examples like Jason Lemkin. I've even run this by him. Like, I look at him as like an influencer in the the B2B SaaS space, right? He runs Saster. You see him on Twitter a lot. I've thought about like, what does it look like? Just we can even talk through it as a thought experiment. Like, what does it look like for him to create a competitor to Gong, right? And all of a sudden, like, as he's talking through ways that you can grow as a sales per- person and how to hire great senior sellers at B2B SaaS companies, the technology he's basically shilling is just gong, but his. I would say where my blind spot is, and this is just as a function of not being a technical founder or building in the world of SaaS is like, I understand how this works with relatively commoditized products. And I think most things in the physical product world are commoditized these days. A big question I have is like, how hard is it to rebuild something like this? And how much resource does it need to maintain it? So like, that's where I think B2B SaaS in theory is a great opportunity, right? Because it's like the the average order of a customer is so much higher. So you don't need as big of an audience. But I just don't know if it's feasible given how commoditized or not commoditized it is. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. On the topic of, of B2B creators, do you feel like YouTube uh, is or will be a big platform? Because uh, it seems like LinkedIn, Twitter, newsletters are, are where B2B creators shine. H- how should we think about other platforms that we typically haven't associated with them? To, to that point, I actually don't think YouTube is the the best option, right? Like something that I think is really smart <clears throat> about what um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy does with, um, you know, all of the Colossus podcasts is like they don't record video, right? Like we've lived in a time and I think a lot of it is valid. I would say it's like the the uh, the Gary V machine, which is how do you record content once and turn it into 30 pieces of content. And I think that, by the way, like that is a generally good way to think about things because you're just thinking about how do I, how am I efficient with my time and how do I create more leverage when there's audience in all of these places. But I think what like Patrick O'Shaughnessy and the team over there realized is like they have a super high value audience that let's just, I'm just guessing, but let's just say is on average 45 years old with household income of 300 plus K a year, um, who is working on wall street or in VC. And like, I think they just asked themselves, what percentage of our audience do we think is consuming YouTube on a daily basis? And I think their answer was like, none of them. So like, why would we record video? Why would we take the time to chop up video? Let's just focus on building a super intimate relationship over podcasts because yes, it's hard to scale, but like we don't need to scale something that massive to get serious dollars because the CPMs on the advertisements are so crazy because of who our audience is. And so I think to answer your question, it all just depends who is your audience that you're building your content for and where is the place that is most natural and least friction filled for them to get your content. It's fascinating. John Coogan is is taking a little bit of the opposite bet. He's trying to be basically like a packy for for YouTube, and, yep. and he he's acknowledges that a lot of his desired audience doesn't listen to it today. But he's trying to take a ten year vision, and he says that the GPs of venture firms don't listen to him today. But five years from now, ten years from now, that next generation will. He believes. And by the way, I think he's probably right. Right? Like, I think if you're willing to play a ten year game, you think about who is okay, if my intended audience is the 30-year-old tech founder, who is the 30-year-old tech founder in 10 years It's or today 
uh, it's the 20 year old who's in college, 20 year old in college is probably more likely to be consuming content on YouTube. And I think he does a great job of it. He's just playing a longer game. Yeah. Are, are there, um, so you mentioned different kinds of businesses. Are there platforms that you think, uh, you, you'd be more excited to work with creators? Cause you just think that those platforms are going to have more value over time or enduring value. How do you kind of, uh, pick and choose between types of creators when you think about durability and, and impact to the business? Yeah. I mean, this is probably just a function of being at morning brew and like seeing how valuable even our like B2B businesses can be is like, I am so much more likely to work with a creator who's like built deep affinity in the world of, I'm just gonna use examples of like wine, uh, in the world of like cigars in the world of watches than I am to work with the next Mr. Beast. Um, not to say that like I wouldn't work with the next Mr. Beast because I think it'd be really cool to find that next person. And I do think like at the end of the day, like I think Feasibles is already a multi-billion dollar company, but I just think the odds are so much lower. Um, and so I would actually think I would take kind of a swing for a next Mr. Beast after three or four wins with niche high value creators. Um, I also just think when you play with a niche and high value, it's less sexy to people which just means it's less competitive. And I don't, I, I don't like competing with people. I'd like to have the advantage of just less demand for something, but something that has a lot of value. So I'd say that's the first thing. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, similar to you, I just see I'm betting, basically my bet is on the idea that I have enough built up legitimacy already that I will be able to get my first creator deal and then I will crush that first creator deal and I'll be able to parlay that into other creator deals. I haven't made a complete decision on do I have to verticalize or not? Because I think verticalization becomes a lot easier, especially if you have an operator who has that uh, knowledge, like maybe they can't operate all of the businesses, but they have the know-how, like they have all of this built-in knowledge that it makes sense. In a perfect world, I wouldn't want to verticalize because I just like learning a lot about a lot of different businesses. But I think, you know, my tune could change when I'm in a space and I'm like, why don't we do this with six other creators? Cigar and watch example, th those people are likely to be newsletter write writers or, or like what's the, how do you, like what kind of format do you envision for them to be? I mean, yeah, I, I would do it. Um, Let's just say there was a like a watch newsletter. I would definitely do it um, in newsletter to start because again, it's like I don't think that audience has to be that big for it to be very valuable. I also think if you're going after a watch audience, it's going to skew a little bit older on average. Um, and then I think again that I, I also am willing to play a long game, so I don't need to build a massive audience in a year. I'm willing to to kind of nurture the audience for a few years to build up, let's call it a 20, like to me, it's a very meaningful business at 25 to $50,000. You could have a very meaningful advertising business because you have watch, uh, whatever they're called, their uh, chronophiles or whatever they call watch heads. And you can have like a paid version because that's an audience that's passionate enough to pay a lot for intelligence into the watch industry. It's also, you know, there's really interesting things like getting watches now, like getting like, uh, primary market watches is nearly impossible. Like I, you know, my one promise to myself, uh, after I sold the brew was like to get myself a nice watch. Cause I've always been into watches. I ended up spending eight months waiting for a watch and it just was never available. 
And so I lost interest. And so, um, yeah, I would start with newsletter. What advice for do you have for me on podcast networks in general? I'm, I'm interested kind of for fun for recording different different podcasts and different spaces and kind of owning the, like we're going to try to do like the definitive AI podcast, for example. Like how um, are podcasts really just like lead gen for other stuff? Or how do you think about podcast networks in, in general? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, I think there's a few ways to go about it, right? Like you could either start with a creator podcast and then go into like, a creator focused newsletter and then a create a paid creator community and i think that that could make sense it's more about what your goals are like basically is your goal to build um a name for yourself as like the definitive person in this space or is your goal to kind of have many bets around people who talk about the creator economy. If it's the latter, I'd say building a network makes a lot of sense because, you know, even just from our experience at The Brew, driving people even from newsletters to podcasts, it's like a pretty shitty conversion rate. Like, I mean, it, it's obvious, but the number one lesson we learned early in The Brew is like, like mediums convert really well to like mediums. So newsletters, newsletters, podcast to podcast. So yeah, if I was to say like, you want to actually sit above and just kind of be the owner of like the de facto voices in the creator world, I'd say, yeah, hundred percent start a network, have several podcasts in the space. If it's like you want to be known as the creator guy, um, and you are a personality in yourself, I would say verticalize. Yeah. The, um, uh, definitely yeah, the latter, uh, in terms of wanting to sit on top and I'm even doing podcasts kind of like in just in spaces that are not necessarily connected. It's all tech, but it's kind of like different categories within tech. Maybe I should be more, more niche than that, but that's just kind of where my, my interests go. Totally. Maybe, um, maybe gearing towards closing here, um, you yourself have also kind of emerged over the past few years as a, as a creator. Is it important for you to go all in on that as you're building this business or do you, uh, how do you think about that as well? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the ways I think about it is kind of the first thing I would say to people who are thinking about starting a media business or being a creator, which is like, you have to really not hate it because you're going to burn out like it. And I think oftentimes you realize the things you like by hearing other people say they hate those things. Like I actually find it's more likely versus me sitting at home being like, I'm loving writing up this 200, 280 character uh, thing right now. More so hearing someone I'm talking to be like, it is so energy sucking every time that I think about firing off a tweet and I just can't do it. And then I think to myself, Actually, no, I have no problem with it. And so like, I think it's part of my way. It is also like, to me, it's a creative outlet. And I have just seen the benefits of whether or not I have, I start creator incubated businesses or I have not, I have seen the benefits firsthand of having a persona online. Like just to give the most concrete example, this plunger business, everything that has happened with this backyard game has been a function of documenting how this business is being built online. Found a potential operator of the business who will run this if it gets the product market fit. Found supplier for the business. Found a 3PL for the business. Found my trademark attorney for the business. I found the plunger poppy who has is a plunger throwing TikTok guy who has 1.5 million followers on TikTok from throwing plungers connected to him because someone saw one of my videos on social. Like everything has happened because of having an audience. So to me, if like, if that's not reason itself, I don't know what would be. T totally. 
And so maybe again, gearing towards closing here, when you look at Morning Brew, you, you we talked about the creator side on, on the business side or more like the, the different brews you have. Do you just see yourself kind of like industry dive, just going across d- different uh, different sort of sectors and trying to build kind of the definitive, uh, you know, newsletter company across them? Or how do you think about where that's going? Yeah, it's funny. I would say similar to kind of uh, your question about how we how I'd compare um, our strategy to that of Barstool. It's a similar answer for B two B, where uh, industry dive has gone super wide, and that's not a bad thing. They've just gone super wide. They have a ton of these verticals. I think our view would again be to stop at like max a dozen of these and go super deep with those audiences. So what does it look like after we've created great newsletter audiences to uh, we've already started doing like go deep into events. And then from events, what does it look like, you know, trade organizations like the national retail federation has been around forever, but like no one who works in industry around our age now thinks about joining that membership community. Like what does that look like within our vertical? So it'll be going deeper, not wider. That makes sense. Is there anything we ha- we haven't covered that's top of mind that you want to make sure we, we get into? Yeah. I mean, I would say to me, like the reason to get into the creator space is not because everyone's talking about the creator economy, because like, as we've seen, like funding for creator economy businesses has dried up. Like these businesses are having a lot of trouble. And I think the reason they're having a lot of trouble is like, I think the 1% of creators make the vast majority of money. And unless you're a platform, it's very hard to be a big business in this space. Like who are the biggest creator economy businesses? It's like YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We just don't talk about them as creator economy businesses. So it's like that massive slice has already been taken. So I just would say like get into this space because you either have that creator in you, you are creative, or you love consuming content not because you think it's cool to get into this space because I think you'll just be in for a rude awakening about like, oh, this abundance of opportunity. Like I think there is opportunity, but I really think people should do it more for the love of the game of being in this space. That's a great place to wrap. Alex, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. God, you're a popular guy. <laughs> yeah, back, Did you set this up? Yeah, it's exactly. like the best way to, to look cool. Exactly. Awesome. Thanks so much, buddy. Cool, uh, man. Take, take it care. easy. We'll talk soon. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short form clips directly from Riverside. Because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code MEDIAEMPIRES to get a 20% discount. Turpentine is a network of podcasts, newsletters, and more covering tech, business, and culture, all from the perspective of industry insiders and experts. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from AI with Cognitive Revolution to Econ 102 with Noah Smith. Our other shows drive the conversation in tech, with the most interesting thinkers, founders, and investors, like Moment of Zen and my show Upstream. We're looking for industry-leading hosts and shows along with sponsors. If you think that might be you or your company, email me at eric at turpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co.